0: You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations. You'll be smarter when you get there. Welcome into another week of Commute, the podcast, where we aim to entertain and inform you over the course of your average commute. I'm Dave, and I'll be joined in just a moment by my co-host, Jay. We'd love to have you rate, subscribe, and review to the show if you haven't already. On your favorite podcast platform, means a lot to us and helps us as we try to grow what we're doing here on Commute. On this episode,
1: how much money is enough money? And will having more money make us happier? Practice your language skills five minutes a day, or else we're talking about Duolingo
0: ever heard the phrase, a fate worse than death? Well, researchers have added to it. A fate worse than death? Public speaking. All of that on this episode of Commute. Let's hit it. So Jay, my boy, today we are going to focus on a question that I think most of us have wrestled with at times in our lives. It's right alongside what is the meaning of life and what happened to Blockbuster. And it has to do with the relationship between happiness and money. Jay, today we're going to take a dive into this burning question. Does more money make us happier? So Jay, let's start here. What's your relationship
1: with money? Are you a spender? Are you a saver? Uh, I'm not a spender. I mean, I can start there. Um, I am, it's, it's agonizing for me to buy things for myself. And I kind of like know where this is going because I know that you're going to bring up like some study or something that says that making more money, you know, doesn't make you happy, but just a gut reaction that you're wrong. I mean, I feel like making more money would probably make me happy.
0: (laughs) Well, give me about three minutes. We'll see how you feel here in just a second. Okay, let's start here. There is a certain level of income that researchers have found will actually increase your happiness. In 2010, one of my favorite authors and researchers, Daniel Kahneman, partnered with a fellow researcher named Angus Deaton on a famous study that concluded our happiness is shown to increase up until we hit about $75,000 per year. Now, a more recent study expanded and updated these findings to come to a number closer to uh, about 90000 but the takeaway, Jay, is still the same. After you earn a certain amount of money, so between seventy-five dollars and $90,000, the research says you will actually not feel happier. If anything, you'll experience a decrease in happiness. So, Jay, what I'm basically saying is that a billionaire is not likely to be much happier than you or I. Now, there is a flip side to this. Okay, the flip side is for folks that make less than $75,000 or find themselves struggling to make their way into what we would consider the middle class. Money can affect your happiness if you make below 75k. The reasoning here makes sense, Jay. I think you'll agree. Theoretically, any money that someone earns at that level can be directly applied to a situation that could potentially improve your life, okay? So this could be something like being able to finally afford buying a house, being able to pursue routine medical care like the dentist or a yearly checkup without feeling like you're sacrificing money needed to pay for gas or groceries or something else that may help you enjoy your life. But at a certain point in terms of your income, and we're looking at these established thresholds, so once again, how much money actually makes you happy, Getting a bigger TV or buying a faster car just simply doesn't do it for you. It doesn't turn your happiness meter. We human beings suffer from what is called hedonic adaptation, which means over time we get used to the changes in our finances. So our expectations and our lifestyle choices change. We buy things for the instant gratification of it instead of the basic need. So Jay, what can we do about this? Obviously, we aren't going to stop pursuing higher earnings or looking for ways to be happier without intentionally being poor. So studies suggest it's how we spend our money that can turn the happiness around for us. Researcher and author Arthur Brooks, in fact, says there are three strategies that we can implement, and those are to spend money on experiences, to spend money on buying time, and to spend money on helping others. So experiences, that's vacations with your family, a dinner out with your wife, a night out with the guys, time. For example, I pay someone to mow my lawn. That frees up some time for me that I can spend with my family. And then there's helping others. A church, a local charity, a worthy cause that you're passionate about. Giving your money to a direct cause that helps improve the lives of others. And Jay, while all three of these are shown to boost dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin levels, and those are the natural chemicals in your body that boost your mood, they all involve one essential key ingredient, other people. So spending your money, no matter the level of income you earn, on other people,
1: is the true key to using your money as a means to a happier life. So I guess the old saying, money can't buy happiness, we need to update it to money can buy happiness, but only up until a certain point. So Dave, what's your relationship like when it comes to learning a foreign language? Have you ever given that a shot before? I have a bad relationship with foreign languages.
0: Okay, so um, I took French in high school. And then didn't take French again until my super senior year. Okay, so I'd gone to college for four years. I had to go an extra semester to get a couple of credits so I could graduate. I needed six hours of French. So I took French, I think it was French 301. That's six hours. It's advanced French. Like you're supposed to know French when you go into this class. I knew nothing about French. So I took this class. I paid a tutor, I think, like 40 bucks an hour, something ridiculous, to help teach me French. She couldn't even do it. I, I was incapable of learning French. Long I could tell this story forever. Long story short... I went and sweet-talked my French teacher into giving me an A. I didn't even have to take any of the tests. She gave me an A. It would never happen again.
1: Well, maybe at the time, you could have benefited from the most downloaded education app in the world, which was created by a Pittsburgh-based startup and is currently worth $1 billion called Duolingo. Have you ever heard of Duolingo before? So I've heard of Duolingo
0: and I kind of understand what it is, but
1: I'm going to be honest with you. Not really. Not a whole lot. So Duolingo is an app that, uh, basically is a, offers you a course on how to learn a foreign language. Uh, Duolingo currently offers 19 distinct language courses and it was created on the premise that, you know, people want to learn new languages, but they don't really have the appropriate tools to do so. And through the life of the app, although he has had many forms, the constant has been a lovable yet sometimes threatening character, their beloved green owl mascot named Duo.
0: I am here for a lovable yet somewhat cantankerous animated mascot.
1: I'm all in on that. So, yeah, let me explain. So... The Duolingo bird duo was redesigned in 2019 to appear more cartoony, but the bird is capable today of causing you more guilt than ever before. Thanks to the redesign that allows their creator to give more animations to the character. Duolingo operates on the principle that you have to work at least a little bit every day. You have to practice some every day if you want to learn a foreign language. So if you miss one or several lessons on Duolingo, the expressions of the bird Change and they range anywhere from him crying tears in your inbox to him using a very, like, cold and emotionless tone to just generally putting off, like, kind of a threatening aura on the app when you decide to skip those extra Spanish lessons for the day. And, you know, the goal is to create this attachment, right, between the user and the bird, making it harder to disappoint or even, like, anger him through your inactivity. You know, Nintendo does something similar when they sell, like, a game with Mario, or Pikachu on the cover. They're attempting to cash in on years of their users building up an attachment with the character, and they hope that the buyers will rush to the store and continue the relationship with the character. It's why mascots work in general. Duo has taken on a totally new life, though, as he's become the target of memes, which attempt to exaggerate his aggression, such as fake headlines like, Duolingo is reporting any user who goes 10 minutes without opening the Duolingo app as a missing person, right? Like when I was researching this uh, story, I spent way too long scrolling after searching Duolingo bird memes on Google and uh, just like losing my mind with how funny it was, you know, from anywhere from people photoshopping the Duolingo bird holding a gun uh, to him holding a knife to him standing in their doorway. Duolingo, though, they wisely... Like leaned into the memification of their famous character and in the process they sent their social media accounts to new heights and i think that there's a lesson to be learned here is that brands often miss this and it's that instead of your marketing department like running away in fear from the memification of your brand or a joke being made about your brand you know do what duolingo did and give like a subtle nod to memes of your brand in a positive light and that sort of engagement will probably pay pretty big financial dividends and driving your long-term growth
0: so i looked up some duolingo memes while you were talking and uh... I'm a major Breaking Bad fan, as you know. And so there's, there's a, a meme of Heisenberg, so Walter White, and, uh, and Saul, Saul Goodman. And so if you've seen the show, you know that their relationship gets kind of contentious towards the end. And so there's a scene where both of their heads are very close. And the Saul character is supposed to be you, the user. And it says, me decides I've studied enough French for the day. Duolingo bird. Somebody's put the Duolingo face over Walter White. We're done when I say we're done.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so we, could, we could we waste, you know, 30 minutes sitting here talking about him. Uh, let's move on and just talk about other reasons why Duolingo is so successful. We'll kind of wrap up on this. So, you know, generally speaking, Duolingo has just taken such a different approach to the teaching of a foreign language they've embraced this idea of gamification, right? And gamification is the process of taking something really difficult, like some kind of difficult task or difficult concept, and you turn it into sort of a game. You add maybe a scoring system or some sort of competition factor. And the idea is that... You know, the competitive nature drives us to our highest levels of learning. And in a way, all social media kind of operates on this from hearts on Instagram to likes on Facebook to retweets on Twitter. In order to compete with you opening Snapchat, the app needs to offer your brain a similar experience to win the competition for your time. So I'll close with this quote from the founder of Duolingo, Louis Von Ahn. He says, learning a language is a lot like going to the gym. Everybody kind of wants to do it, but when it comes down to it, the hardest thing is to keep yourself motivated. Unlike going to school where you're essentially sort of forced to go, you're in an app where it's very easy to go somewhere else. Here's another one I like. It's a screenshot of a conversation on Twitter.
0: So the Twitter user, unpopular opinion. The Duolingo bird is the most forced meme of the year. Duolingo Bird. Buddy, the only thing that's going to be forced is my way into your house. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so Jay, I'm excited about this one. We're going to land the plane here. And this is one I've been working on for a couple weeks. So this is something I've always been fascinated about. And it's the concept of fear and what we're afraid of. So Jay, as human beings, you would think that our worst fear is our eventual ending right? Death.
1: Yeah, I think that that would probably be an early answer for yeah. most people. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and concepts of an afterlife, like heaven or hell, aside, so not taking those into consideration, none of us want to die. And it may shock you to find out that substantial research has been conducted over the past decade to show that there is actually something that we humans fear more than death. Public speaking. So why is this? Well, to put it as simply as possible, I don't believe, and much of the research would back me up on this, that it's the act of public speaking that people are so afraid of. Instead, it's easy to conclude that it's the potential for failure that public speaking opens us up to that we actually fear. Basically, the shame attached with messing up in front of other people. And Jay, this isn't something that most people grow out of with age or something that experienced leaders are immune to. According to a 2018 survey conducted by Norwest Venture Partners, nine out of every 10 CEOs, so 90%, admit that fear of failure keeps them up at night more than any other concern. So if you yourself have ever felt this deeply rooted fear, you're not alone. In fact, Psychology Today reports that at any one time, at least 20 million individuals around the world are suffering from some form of fear or anxiety. Basically, a bad feeling associated with the fear of being negatively evaluated in something you're doing and that resulting in rejection or abandonment. What's really fascinating to me, Jay, as you dig deeper into this widespread fear of failure, is that this brand of fear is kind of a moving target. So what I mean by that is that it truly comes from an unknown. We so easily write a story or focus on an outcome that we've already created in our heads. Now, I think we can all agree that some fear in life is actually necessary for us to survive, right? I mean, I'm not going to go swim in shark-infested waters. I fear being eaten by a shark. Or even worse, I fear being half-eaten by a shark, where the shark would kind of bite me and almost kill me, but not kill me and leave me there to die alone in the middle of the ocean.
1: I was going to say that you won't swim in any waters (laughs) past your waist, uh, as is widely (laughs) known by people who know you.
0: So true. But seriously, should we fear the outcome of a work presentation that we've never given before? Should we fear the approval of others with every word we say and every action we take? A healthy answer to this question is no, but unfortunately, most people actually do fear these things. For the fear of this type of shame to be held in such a place as it is to take precedent over death on the fear scale, we can see how crippling it can be to folks.
1: Yeah. And it's really like with anything in life, it's the more you understand yourself and the reactions, both positive and negative that you may have to a situation, the better you'll be able to respond to it. Uh, I know we've mentioned like the Enneagram test, for example, on uh, this podcast before, but uh, maybe we'll go more in depth uh, on it on a later episode. But I know for me, like I'm an Enneagram five, right? And and Enneagram five, like their biggest fear is looking incompetent, right? Like that's like the big thing uh, for an Enneagram five. And so I sort of know that about myself and it helps me deal with the world in a more constructive way. So
0: I think you'll find this fascinating. So the 2010 study that I referenced before that was conducted about fear, here are the top 14 things okay that people are afraid of. I'll start at number one and go down to number fourteen. You ready? Okay here we go. So excited for public speaking (laughs) number one. Number two, financial problems. Number three, death. Number four loneliness. Number five, heights. Number six, Bugs. Number seven, deep water. Number eight, darkness. Number nine, sickness. Number 10, flying. Now, these next four are incredible. Number 11, elevators. Number 12, driving in a car. <laughs> number 13, dogs. And number 14, and Jay, you're on this list, escalators. Escalators.
1: I love how it just keeps getting weirder and weirder as you go down the list. It gets more specific as you go. It's like, we're all scared of this stuff, but uh, only some people are scared of this stuff as you start to go down the list. And that's it. Thanks for listening to
0: this episode of Commute. Don't forget to please rate, subscribe, and review Commute on your favorite podcast platform. Music for this show is provided by Jason Salmons. For Jason and I'm Dave Trob. We'll see
1: you next week.